You're listening to the One Peter Five podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Habemus Papan. Rebuilding Catholic culture. Restoring Catholic tradition. Hello and welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, episode number 75. I'm Steve Skojak. And today, on this U.S. election eve, I want to talk about the election and what's coming. Um, for those of you in our international audience, I apologize if this topic doesn't interest you, although from what I've been hearing, people around the world are certainly watching this election rather closely. A um, couple of administrative things first. Uh, so we've been putting out a lot of content. Uh, this is actually the third podcast I've done in the past five days. Traffic's way up, and we're really happy to have all of you. So thank you for reading. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Um, but one thing that is not way up is our fundraising. Uh, we finished October actually pretty far short of our goal. So we need you guys to keep this thing going. Um, if you like what we're doing here, we just ask that you please show your support with a contribution. I know I'm asking all the time, but we do sort of a minimalistic approach to fundraising. We try to hit each monthly goal per month because that's how most of us function. We pay our bills on a monthly basis. And so I ask on a monthly basis rather than trying to get a bunch all at once. Um, I'm not a fundraiser. Maybe I'm doing it the wrong way. I don't know. This is how I do it. So if what we're providing is worth something to you, if it's valuable to you, if you enjoy it, if you keep coming back, you know, if it's worth to you as much as a cup of coffee or a hamburger, you know, can you put the cost of a cup of coffee or a hamburger in once a month? And just go to onepeter5.com forward slash donate. You can do it right now. Pause this video. Uh, maybe I can stick a card up. I think it's on this side of the screen. You can just follow that link if it works. Uh, but if you could do that, that would be fantastic since October ended pretty pretty far short, about 20% short of our goal. We need to try to make up for it here in November. So that would be awesome. Now, that's out of the way. Um, so today's show is going to be all about the election. But first, I actually wanted to show you something that I find absolutely hilarious and, and perfectly emblematic of, uh, of the year of 2020. Um, this, this thing is, somebody shared it last night. It's apparently a video from Barcelona, Spain, and it's basically 2020, the musical as somebody on Twitter put it. So I'm going to play this for you here. So you've got this guy again, this is supposedly Barcelona, but there's riots going on and he's got this nice little, you know, Yamaha electric piano, just playing in the park. They're, They're literally setting things on fire. Stuff's exploding in the background. People throwing rocks. The cops are coming. And he's playing Eternal Flame by the Bengals, which, you know, if you're looking for for some subtle irony uh, with things burning in the background, I think you couldn't do much better than that. And the people are like, yeah, we're going to hang out. We're going to keep listening. Everybody, you know, half of them are wearing masks. Cops are whistling. Things are exploding. People are getting nervous but he just keeps on playing. This guy is a boss. He doesn't even pause. He doesn't even turn to look behind him. The people are clearly getting nervous at this point, but he's just going to keep on playing. It's one of the most amazing videos I've ever seen. And uh, I I just thought it summed things up really well, and I wanted to share that with you. See if you found it as funny as I do. Let's get back to the topic du jour. Um, Today's show is all about the election. Uh, As I said, um, we've been actually a little bit careful here about how we handle election stuff because, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning with the donations, we're 501c3. We were set up that way uh, in large part because we had a foundation reach out to us and say, we'd like to give you some startup capital. Way back in 2014, we believe in, in your mission. We want to give you this this little bit of money that you can use to build on, but we can only give to nonprofits. So could you register as a, as a tax-exempt organization? So we did. Um, but tax-exempt organizations under the IRS code, because of something called the Johnson Amendment, are not allowed to do much with politics. We can't endorse candidates. We can't make it look like we're trying to endorse candidates. And this has been a problem, I think, for a lot of people. I've been hearing it more and more lately. Um, 
you know, priests and, and bishops, they need to stop being afraid of losing their tax exempt status because they need to speak up on politics. They have to be able to say what needs to be said on politics. And, you know, as somebody who's very outspoken on a lot of things, I generally agree. Now, this is not a political publication at all. Uh, I, I used to do that kind of writing for Catholic Vote and for Crisis Magazine. I, I wanted to steer away from it because there was so much going on in the church. I wanted to stay focused there. But, but the bleed between politics and religion and society and culture has become so deeply intermixed, uh, particularly this year. And, and I think all of the letters from Archbishop Vigano are demonstrative of that fact that I don't see a way to stay out of it anymore. And I've actually turned down earlier this year, I turned down some articles from people that were really, you know, candidate endorsements because I said, that's not really what we do and it's a risk. Um, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And um, if this isn't the time to take the risk, I don't know when would be. Um, so, the way I look at it, you know, if Biden wins, who knows how long publications like ours are going to even be allowed to continue to exist, at least without a lot of oversight and restrictions and probably IRS weaponization and things like that. I mean, I always felt worried about that under Obama since we started this publication while he was still president. And I'm sure this would be even worse because things have just progressed so much further. So what I decided today, and really to an extent, the last two podcasts, because they talked about politics as well. I'm putting all my chips in, Johnson Amendment be damned. We all know who needs to win this election, and that is Donald Trump. If we want to continue our way of life, uh, if we want to have a chance at that, it's him. So I'm going to talk about this today uh, kind of with the gloves off. And if I lose the tax exemption status for this organization, then we'll find a way to keep going without it. We will reconstitute. Uh, it's going to be hard because I think for a lot of people, that tax exemption makes it possible, especially for the people who make the larger donations to help us out. But I, I can't have, I just can't have the handcuffs on anymore. And, you know, Trump himself actually gave an executive order, I think it was to the Department of the Treasury, saying don't enforce the Johnson Amendment. Religion needs to influence politics. These These people need to be able to talk about the issues. But he didn't actually take it off the books, so it's still there. So anything can happen. So we're just gonna just gonna throw caution to the wind. I don't give a damn because this is too important of an election not to talk about it and uh, let the chips fall where they may. So um, let's talk about this enthusiasm that we're seeing for Trump here in this final stretch leading up to the election. I don't know if you've been watching it, but there have been rallies. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Hopefully this is going to work. I've never done this before. So I, I tweeted this out last night. Trump is basically selling out stadiums on weeknights, work nights, school nights. He's doing them on work mornings and school mornings. This is Opelika, Florida. This is at 12.35 a.m. in the morning. This is, I mean, it's like a rock concert. I don't know how many people are here, 40, 50,000. Uh, and, and I started going through and looking at, I mean, how many rallies he's doing a day. Here was one a little bit earlier in the day. This was Rome, Georgia. So we have another one here with just a sea of people. Um, there was another one uh, in Hickory, North Carolina. I mean, it's just one after another. Every single time, these are huge. He's still doing these today. You know, th this idea that the energy that this guy is bringing to this and the, and the reaction that you're getting from people. I mean, this video is pretty fascinating because it's sort of a compilation of different events that he's gone to. I've never seen enthusiasm like this for a political candidate in my lifetime. Now, there are some people who say, you know, that uh, Obama, you know, he drew huge crowds at the beginning and he definitely did. I mean, look at the, these are boats. Uh, you get these Trump trains all over the place. I ran into one um, the other day, totally unexpectedly here in Phoenix. And uh, I mean, it went for miles and miles and miles. We were driving the opposite direction and we were on the opposite side of the highway. So they were headed eastbound and we were westbound. But I mean, it just went and went and went and never stopped until I got off the exit. 
I've never seen anything like this for a political candidate. And I think, and I want to talk about this a little bit more later, that this is about much more than Trump. And that's why this enthusiasm is happening uh, the way that it is. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. That Trump train that I saw, it was last Sunday. Um, was, I mean, it was pretty good. And I think we were catching the tail end of it. But there was another one here in Arizona this Sunday. Um, what Today's Monday. So yesterday. And it stretched over 95 miles from Tucson uh, to Phoenix. And the camera was showing just people lined up on the side of the road. These are people coming out on their day off. This is grassroots. Nobody's organizing this for them that I know of. I mean, I didn't even know about the one that was happening here in town. This is enthusiasm that is spontaneous. They are trying to show support not only for the president, but for the ideal of what he represents and, and to reassure themselves and each other that, hey, we still exist. There are still people in this country who care about how everything turns out. Um, and you know, the polls are changing rapidly. The Trafalgar group, which was one of the most accurate polling firms for the 2016 election. Cause remember a lot of the polling there was bad and they didn't see a Trump victory happening. Trafalgar has Trump ahead of Biden right now in the battleground States of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, and Michigan. I said Michigan twice, but Michigan's is significant. So if it's twice, it still matters. Uh, Minnesota, they still have that going to Biden, which is absolutely insane to me. All of these George Floyd riots started there. M Minneapolis was burned down, I mean, in, in big sections. The rioting went on there forever. And the fact that, that people are still willing to vote for more of the same, because, I mean, this is what's happening. They are threatening, if you elect Trump, there will be more riots. It's, it's mafia tactics. It's if you don't pay us protection money, well, you know, we can't do anything about what's going to happen to you. They're literally extorting the American people for votes, threatening them with violence if they don't do uh, what they're told. And, and by the way, I mean, you know, there's videos coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, they're boarding up everything, you know, in, in the districts. Uh, in the areas where all the law firms are, K Street and, and, and everything in the governmental areas, everything is getting boarded up, has been for days, because they know what's coming. And nobody, nobody thinks that it's Trump voters who are going to be rioting and smashing windows and looting and, and setting things on fire. Everyone knows that it's the left. Everyone knows those are Biden's people who are going to do that. What do you think that does in the minds of moderate and fair-minded Democrats, you know, people who, yeah, they hold liberal views, but you think they really want to see their country burned down? Do you think they want to see their businesses broken into their stuff looted, their family members threatened on the street? You know, do you think that, I mean, that couple, I don't remember their name, the McCluskey's or whatever the name was of the, of the two attorneys, um, down in St. Louis who defended their home. Was it St. Louis? I think it was St. Louis. Uh, you know, with guns on their front lawn, and it was this big thing. Those guys were Democrats. They they were not Republicans. There is a shift in mentality when when your home, your family, your livelihood, your you know, uh, your property, all of your your things that you hold most dear, most sacred, are being threatened uh, by an unscrupulous mob that has. You know, n nobody's nobody's doing anything to stop it in these cities. The the police are being told to stand down. The mob is being allowed to run amok. That changes minds. When you start threatening people at home, when you hit them where they live, they're not going to keep voting for the people who say that's okay. And so, you know, this enthusiasm is spreading to places that you don't normally see it. Um, places like New York City, there was a Trump train that su shut down the Cuomo Bridge, I guess that replaced the Tappan Zee Bridge a few years ago, uh, which is amazing to me that the Cuomos are really that arrogant that they named that bridge after their dad. But, you know, 
If you're willing to kill a bunch of people in a nursing home, I guess all bets are off. Uh, they were out in New Jersey, too. They were all over the tri-state area, which is, this is a part of the country that has been deep blue for such a long time. And it's amazing to me that this is, this is what's going on in places like this. And I think it's just because people are fed up. You know, there's places like Philadelphia, which has been hit with riots for weeks over something absurd because a guy with a knife got shot by police. And I guess that's unjust now. Uh, when somebody's going to attack you with a knife, you're not allowed to shoot them. Um, they've been rioting there for weeks. So they've just seen the Philly police and fire departments uh, endorse Trump. They've never endorsed a Republican, ever. This is the first time. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which is the biggest paper in that city, also just endorsed Trump. It's the first time since 1972 that they have endorsed a Republican. These are big indicators in a major battleground state. And of course, Biden's comments about fracking and about moving away from fossil fuels. Pennsylvania is deeply invested in, in those industries, and they have hundreds of thousands of jobs there that are dependent on them. He killed himself in Pennsylvania, which, you know, he loves telling people that he grew up in Scranton. And I don't know the story. I mean, I've seen people say he lived there for a very short time. I grew up in Binghamton, New York, which is about 40 minutes from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, I just, I always think it's funny when, you know, he claims this heritage from, uh, from that area because he doesn't, he doesn't live or, or act like a man who's from there. There's been this thing that has been warned about which is called the Red Mirage. And that's something that um, we're hearing a lot of you know, concerns about how things are going to play out on Election Day. I already mentioned the threat of violence. So this came out from the Trump campaign. I'm going to just read it. Trump campaign statement uh, dated today, uh, November 2nd, 2020, on Democrat plans to delegitimize Election Day results. Democrats are panicking because Joe Biden has not run up a large enough lead in early votes in battleground states, and they know President Trump's in-person votes on Election Day will make up the difference and propel him to victory. Biden's political operatives have already been distributing talking points and research to delegitimize Election Day results by coaching surrogates to refer to the president's Election Day success as a red mirage. The operatives are advising surrogates and media to create a smokescreen by casting blame all around, imagining postal delays or falsely claiming that mail-in ballots have simply not been returned should be considered legitimate votes that need to be counted. None of this will be true, but it will be held up as proof that President Trump's victory is a so-called red mirage. No one should fall for it. We are aware that Democrats have already cut television ads they're prepared to deploy to further cement the red mirage misinformation, seeking to convince people that all Joe Biden would need for victory is more time, extending well beyond Election Day. At the same time, we fully anticipate that Democrats will be in court arguing to extend deadlines for accepting and counting votes mailed and received well past deadlines enacted by individual state laws. Americans should remember that Biden has assembled a massive team of lawyers who will try and loosen election integrity so that they can steal this election. And also recall that Hillary Clinton advised Biden not to concede defeat under any circumstances. The last gasp of the Biden campaign will be ugly and it will be ruthless. Look, I've seen people get super upset about this idea of Trump not being willing to say, yeah, I'm just going to accept the, the election results. But this is why. He's not willing to accept them unless they are demonstrably correct. And election fraud is something that they are not beneath. We know this. I mean, this is the party of, of child murder, of child massacre. Their entire party platform is built on the blood of innocence. I, I, there's no other way to say it. So if you think that a bunch of people who are willing to murder millions of children in the womb and, and to pander to that bloodlust in order to earn votes, who will give out free stuff to people in order to earn votes, who will suppress law and order in cities and threaten continued violence towards those who don't vote for them in order to gain power and win elections. Do you really think that they won't cheat and lie and steal their way towards taking this election? Of course they will. Of course they will. They don't have ethics. They don't have morals. So, this is why Trump isn't going to just concede. It's going to have to be demonstrable. 
And, and you know, I, I suspect that by this time next week, we may or may not know who the president is, but I think it will at least, I mean, it will at least be days of, of, of contention unless the landslide is so profound that there's just no doubt that just, there's no way that the ballots that are outstanding could make the difference, but it is going to be a battle. And it, I mean, it quite literally may be a battle in the streets. And if Trump wins, or even if he doesn't, if he's still in office, National Guard is going to be mobilized in a lot of places. The people have had enough. They want this put down. So what has actually happened, the statement continues, is that Democrats fielded a candidate in Joe Biden who excites virtually no one. That's true. And his potential voters are not motivated enough to go to the polls in person. They're not motivated enough to go to his rallies. They're not. When do you when do you see Biden trains? When do you see more than a dozen people at a Biden rally? I think the most he got was like 100 cars at one rally. The fact that this spontaneous enthusiasm exists, that people will go wait in line for hours, that they'll sign up for tickets and most of them don't get them, that they go on weekdays and school days in the mornings and late at night just to see Trump, that is a, a very small microcosmic representative sample of the number of people who are feeling that enthusiasm for the man. I just I I think the fact that Biden can't gin up that much support, that he can't pull a rally that looks anything like what Trump has been doing, is highly indicative of where this thing is going. Democrats also made the mistake of spending months frightening their supporters away from voting in person because of coronavirus, and now they've realized that their early vote lead will not be enough. Biden's campaign also committed the political sin of failing to build a ground game of field operations. And now they're paying the price with their inability to turn out supporters. Biden knows that the votes he already has in the bank through early voting are from supporters they already had. So he has cannibalized his own election day turnout. Because of this Biden predicament, we are on guard for Democrats to attempt to subvert state deadlines for receiving and counting ballots. And we will fight to make sure they adhere to the law. President Trump wants every eligible voter to be able to vote, vote once, and have it counted. This statement was from Justin Clark who is the deputy campaign manager for Trump. You know, and there's just, I mean, there's so much nonsense going on out there. Maxine Waters is arguably the dumbest person who's ever been in government. Um, and she warned that she would never, ever forgive young black men who vote for President Trump over Joe Biden, claiming that they would go down in history as having done the most despicable thing. Woman, who the hell are you to tell these people who they should vote for? Who the hell are you to demand party allegiance and party loyalty over their own self-interest? This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. You know, actually, in, in counter to that, I want to show you a video that I came across today uh, from a black voter who said exactly why he's not making that choice. And she can forgive or not forgive him, but none of these men need her approval. President Trump has done more for the black community than any Democrat ever has. And I grew up in Philadelphia, in the streets of Philadelphia, and I never benefited from any programs that any other Democrats had set forth. But President Trump, President Trump has got me to work. President Trump has got my family secure. President Trump is great for America, and I'm so excited. So let me give you another example. This is the Twitter account of Josh Shapiro. Shapiro is the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. He writes on October 31st, if all the votes are added up in Pennsylvania, Trump is going to lose. That's why he's working overtime to subtract as many votes as possible from this process. For the record, he's zero and six against us in court. We've protected voting rights. Now ignore the noise, vote. This guy is the attorney general. He's gonna be overseeing this process. And he's saying before election day that Trump has already lost. How do you know? How would you even know that? This looks like voter intimidation to me. Why is this not being investigated? This, this is the kind of thing that, that causes this conflict over are you going to accept election results? No, not until I know that these people are not defrauding the American people of their votes. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. 
you know, and we're of course seeing dire new COVID numbers out there. Um, big, big, big upswing in new cases and, um, you know, six figures. Look, there are multiple things happening. We are having problems with testing and, and, and false positives. Um, it's seasonal, you know, we are, we're in that seasonal cycle again, which viruses follow. We knew that it was likely that COVID was going to make a comeback in the fall. Um, but what we're not seeing are, are, are new cases tracking with deaths and severe hospitalizations so far. So, you know, what winds up being politically useful is just the raw data of there's 100,000, there's 200,000 new cases. That reportage is itself damaging. Now, I can't really blame outlets for saying this is a story. It is a story. But when they're putting that out there, the way they're putting it out there, it feels very calculated to me um, because this is a point that Biden has been hammering. It's about the only thing he's got going for him right now is trying to go after Trump, trying to blame the deaths that have happened in this country on President Trump's response to the pandemic. But I have seen this all along as a double-edged sword because I think all Americans are sick of this. Yes, there's a legion of Karens out there that want everybody to wear masks and are still squawking at you about it. But I think the majority of people are done. They're done with the lockdowns. They're done with the social distancing. They're done with the mask wearing. They're done with this idea of when I go to a restaurant, I have to deal with a limited menu and all every other table's closed. And it, it sucks. Life needs to come back to some kind of normalcy. If this thing were still killing at the rate that it did early on, they would have an argument. But it's not. The new cases are not leading to all these new deaths. The treatments are becoming more effective. They're understanding the virus better. So Biden pushing this idea of indefinite masking and indefinite lockdowns, I, I think that's a really bad campaign promise to make to people who are done with this. They're done. So <clears throat> we are seeing, though, this reportage of these new cases, you know, and that's going to, first of all, it's going to make people afraid to go vote in person. Uh, I actually requested a mail-in ballot earlier this year because I didn't know, you know, we we're going to be seeing rioting at the polling or things like that. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to have it, and then I can make a choice. And I did. I decided to fill it out and go take it in and, and hand it in in person uh, because I wanted to make sure it got to where it was going. But but I think that a lot of people are afraid. They're going to mail things. Things are going to get lost. It's going to become a mess. You know, I think there was a guy in, I think he was in Pennsylvania, I'm not sure, who set fire to a ballot box. So all those ballots are destroyed. There's a lot of, of shenanigans going on, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, and I've already talked about the civil unrest. Um, we, know, we know that's going to happen. I mean, there, do you guys remember, I don't think I mentioned this earlier in the show, but do you remember after the 2016 election, there were actually riots in uh, D.C., and it was Antifa uh, that was behind those riots. And uh, I remember I lived in the area at the time, and it was really surprising because, you know, you you wind up being very familiar with the city when you're going there all the time. And to see this kind of thing happening in the streets, I remember they set this limousine on fire and all this stuff. For 2016 standards, that was pretty extreme. But compared to what we've seen this year, it was nothing. But the fact that they were able to do that then, and it was so unusual, it was so out of the un or uh, out of the ordinary, it was so unexpected. It's going to be a lot worse, and you know the mayor of D.C. isn't going to do anything to stop it. Trump's going to have to. He's going to have to. He's going to have to put this stuff down. This is insurrection. You know, I I said it uh, the other day on Twitter, but not enough people are getting written housed uh, right now. When you're out there threatening people's lives, when you're you know, carrying weapons, when you're beating people, when you're curb stomping them in the streets, uh, when you're just walking up to people and shooting them because they're wearing, you know, something that shows that they support a political candidate you don't like. These people, they need to face violence. And I don't advocate vigilantism, but if the police are going to stand down, people have to defend themselves. This cannot be allowed to continue. And you know, again, I'm going to talk about this more as we go through all of this, but I think this is a big precipitating factor 
for what I believe will be a democratic loss. Voter turnout uh, so far has been huge, or huge, as the president might say. Here in Arizona, there have already been 2.6 million ballots cast, which is nearly as much as came in in 2016 by the end of the election. And um, I, think, I think the thing I read said it was almost 2.6 million ballots have already been cast. 2016, it was 2.66 million that had been cast. So by election day, uh, we're going to seriously surpass that number. You know, and we still have tomorrow to go. So what's happening? How do we break this all down? And where is it going? And what's going on? And what should we think? People keep asking me what I think. I ask other people what they think. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't or have not had up until now a profound instinct on what's going to happen exactly and where this is going to go. But some, I do have an impression that is definitely forming. Um, and a lot of that relates to this enthusiasm, this energy that we're seeing out there. Some people are still pessimistic, even despite it all. People doubt. They think it's going to be a big disappointment. I also, you know, I ran into a couple conversations online today uh, where people said that they didn't understand what the point was of all these rallies that Trump's doing. Uh, and he's doing something like four a day right now, I think, which, you know, if you watch what he's doing, the speeches that he's giving, he's flying into one place, he gets done, he gets out, he goes, flies to the next place, just one after another after another. Meanwhile, this is a guy who just had COVID. Uh, we, know, we know somebody who had COVID who's young, in his 30s, he's healthy, uh, fitness nut, no comorbidities. The guy was out for two months with COVID, like couldn't get out of bed, couldn't work, his head was foggy, he wound up with pneumonia, he had all these problems, right? It just completely sapped the energy out of him. Uh, and you look at this Trump who's, I don't know, 72, I think he's 72, and he's out there, you know, just one thing after another, bringing the energy, bringing the enthusiasm. I, I've never seen anything like it. I'm exhausted watching him do this. Uh, and I'm, you know, 30 years younger. He has uh, tiger blood, I think, to, to borrow a phrase from Charlie Sheen. Um, so it's a phenomenon. The number of people who are showing up, doing grassroots, Trump trains, rallies, you know, again, on weekdays, school days, work days. Uh, this, is, this is something that you just don't see. Um, I think the secret ingredient here, though, if you really want to get down to what's happening... People aren't just coming out for Trump. That's what it looks like. And that's what people on both sides that are skeptical here or, or who hate what's going on, they don't understand. They're not coming out for Trump. What Trump is, what he represents is something more. He's almost a mirror. These people are coming out, I think, to see each other. It's sort of like the March for Life. The March for Life, it, it doesn't present a persuasive political argument for ending abortion. It is, it is not effective as a political protest. And even Justice Scalia commented on this in his dissent from uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey back in 1992. You know, he talked about how they show up at the steps of the Supreme Court and expect them to, you know, unelected justices to listen to the will of the people. And that's not their job. But, but the problem and the reason that that happened is because, um, the court had taken upon itself to begin determining things that was outside the scope of its, of its competence. So the March for Life inherently fails as, a, as an activity that's going to affect a political change. But where it doesn't fail is the confirmation of the faithful. Because it's a rite of passage for every pro-life kid to go to the March for Life and, and just look at the number of people, most of them young, who are of the same mind as them. And it keeps them from losing hope. They look around and they're like, this is a pro-life country. That this many kids would come here and do this and they care this much about it. There is hope. There is a future. Hundreds of thousands of people come here to, to show their support for this cause 40 plus years later, we have been defeated at every turn, but we're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. That's what these Trump rallies, to, to my mind, 
that's what they represent. They want to be reminded, the people who are going to these things, that they're not alone. And maybe you've experienced this. If you're a Trump voter, if you see somebody with a Trump shirt or a MAGA hat or, I mean, even if they're flying a big American flag outside their house, it's, it's not something you see a lot from the left. And, you know, it's funny. We had this sort of social experiment unintentionally the other day uh, on Halloween. Uh, we get together with uh, a couple of other Catholic families on Halloween, and we go trick-or-treating. We always go to the same neighborhood. This year was really strange because the neighborhood was a ghost town. Like Usually, there's a ton of people out. All the houses, or most of the houses, have lights on. The kids come back with this huge haul of candy. You know, we all have this, we make this big, you know, night of it. And this time, we were, I mean, so between the three and a half families that were represented there, I think we had over 20 kids. Uh, let's see, we have, we have, we brought six of our kids. Uh, friend had five. His brother was there with their 10. There was several from another family. So yeah, I mean, it was over 20. It was closer to 30 kids. You know, we're just mobbing the street. Most of the houses were not, you know, open for business. Some of the ones that were, they had masks on. So we do this thing where it, it's a big, long street. We go down to the end. We come around the corner. We come back up. And by the time we're halfway back, uh, the little kids are wiped because it's already over a mile that we've walked and they want to go home. So the dads will take the little kids. We go back to the house. Um, to enjoy an adult libation and uh and the big kids continue um you know the teenagers they keep going around and then they come back they finish the loop and so we let them go on their own and they told us that what happened was um they went to this house <laughs> one of the kids was apparently very politically active uh and he's a sophomore in high school he was wearing newspapers all over his body and and it was labeled fake news and so he went as fake news for Halloween. So he shows up at this door of a guy with Biden signs in the yard. And uh, they knock on the door. And he, for whatever reason, is in the front of the pack. The guy sees his costume. And he's like, fake news. He's like, what, what, what's fake news? And the kid's like, you know, CNN, NBC. So the guy screams at him to get out. You don't get anything from me. He's yelling at a kid. These are your Biden voters, people. Now, granted, my kids told me this story, and they, in the interest of fairness, they said, look, we went to other houses that had Biden paraphernalia in the yard, and some people didn't look too happy with us because, you know, one kid was wearing a MAGA hat. Like, there was some obvious Trump, Trumpian affiliation there. Um, but they said nobody treated us like that except for that one guy. But I, I feel like there's too much of that one guy. Like, who does that to a kid who's shown up at your house for trick-or-treating? You know, maybe you razz him a little bit, but come on. I used to work with a Democratic strategist uh, by the name of Peter Fenn uh, who worked on, um, you know, campaigns for Kerry. I think he worked on Gore's campaign, was a senior political advisor. You know, he runs a, a political strategy firm in D.C. Uh, he's a really nice guy, really nice guy, super lib. Um, and I worked with him at this PR firm that I used to work for. And uh, he was actually even active in the Obama administration. He'd leave our offices and he'd go down to the White House for meetings and stuff like that. But we would talk about Pat Buchanan because, you know, Pat Buchanan, uh, you know, went to D lived in D.C., went to the same church that I did. You know, I'd see him. I never really interacted with him. I think I was too intimidated because he's, he's a big, big mind. Uh, a lot of really important ideas. was a formative thinker for me personally. Um, but they used to go on shows together like Crossfire and they would argue with each other. And then afterward they'd go out for dinner. And I remember Peter telling me like, I disagree with, with Pat about everything, but we're friends and we can be friends. And I thought, you know, the decency of being able to be civil to someone you disagree with strongly because you, you both at least inherently have a recognition that we're both citizens of the same country. We want the best. We disagree about how we're going to get there. And some of you, are, I think, are probably chomping at the bit right now to see, but you can't. And, and I get it. We have reached you know, such a moment of polarization in our politics 
where the left and the right believe such diametrically opposite things that it's almost like, yeah, I was hanging out, you know, with Himmler the other day. Yeah, we had a barbecue together. No, I know. He kills a lot of Jews, but, you know, we could still be friends afterward. I mean, that's how people feel because of, of abortion and because of, you know, gay marriage and because of a lot of these issues, you know, transgenderism and all this stuff. It's, it's destructive. It's evil. And so how can you be friends with another person? And yet at the same time, Christian charity compels us to treat other people like human beings. They, we have to treat them like human beings and we can disagree with them. We can even be strongly critical of them. But at the same time, we got to be like, okay, but you know, you were made in God's image and likeness and I desire your salvation and I'm not going to just hate you, but it's gotten very, very hard. Those lines are, are, are so blurred. So going back to what we were talking about that led to this sort of segue into a tangent, which I am rather apt at doing tangents, as everyone knows. Um, you know, these people who are coming to these rallies are coming to be part of something bigger. They're coming out for what Trump makes them believe about themselves, about their country, and about the future. That's the thing that's drawing people. Now, I will say, when it comes to Trump himself, I have never seen anyone work a crowd like this. And it struck me for a couple of reasons. One, um, Trump annoys me a lot of times. Like, I like him, but his arrogance gets on my nerves. I have a problem with cocky people. Um, you know, I will call people out if I see people showboating and being cocky and, 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 you know, doing the me, me, me thing. I can't stand it. It bugs me. I don't know why. It's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, I just, I, I don't like arrogance. And Trump is an arrogant man. There are times, though, when I appreciate it because it's weaponized in a way that it annoys his political enemies and it makes them make mistakes. And it's just, you know, liberal tears are so delicious and so salty. So salty. Uh, I don't know why I did that voice for that. Um, but, but anyway, it's so, you know, there are times when he bugs me. But I was watching him do this speech in uh, Macon, Georgia. That was the one that I watched. Because it was on live on Facebook, and I happened to be on Facebook at that time, and I saw that it came up, and I started watching it, and I couldn't stop. And I actually went back uh, with my cousin Jimmy, who was on the podcast last Friday, and I actually watched it again, and I wound up watching pretty much the whole thing, which is over an hour, because it was fascinating to me the way this man works a crowd. I mean, he gets up there, he disregards what's on the teleprompter, he starts, you know, making jokes uh, taking swipes at, at, at his political adversaries, taking swipes at the, at the things that have been done, the pet issues that he knows that his audience is most upset about. I have this thing up on my wall. Uh, I can't see it because it's actually behind the, the light that I use for these podcasts. Um, but it's a, it's a thing about one sentence persuasion. And there are five things on there. I don't know if I remember them all off the top of my head, but if you really want to be persuasive, you need to do things like uh, confirm people's suspicions. You need to throw rocks at their enemies. You need to allay their fears. What are the other two? Justify their failures and encourage their dreams. Trump has this naturally. He knows how to do all of those things. And he's doing it just constantly in a state of flow you know scott adams who is the creator of the dilbert comic strip has has written and talked extensively about trump and adams before he was a, a cartoonist and he's a leftist but he's a huge trump admirer um was a trained hypnotist and he said that trump is the most naturally persuasive man he's ever seen he uses the techniques that a hypnotist would use uh just instinctively uh, and it's one of the just amazing. It's just amazing to see it happen. So he's there working this crowd and he's telling them jokes and the feeling that they had and even that I had sitting here watching it on my screen. I'm not even present or proximate to the man. It's almost like, you know, he's sitting next to you at a bar, right? And he's leaning in and he's telling you this story and he's like, you know, nudging you in the arm at, at certain points and, you know, making the joke and making sure you get it. And you feel included, you feel part of it. There's nothing about the man 
that comes across as elitist. And he is a billionaire, very successful, famous, one of the most famous people, if not the most famous person in the world right now. And he has the ability to be an elitist. He has sort of the cred to be elitist. He has the accomplishments, but he isn't. He appeals to the blue collar man in a way that is absolutely stunning to watch. And he brought up this point that I found fascinating. He said, you know, I had a very nice life before. It was a very nice life. And uh, I could have gone back to it, but I don't want to because I want to fight for you and I want to fight for this great country. And nobody has ever fought harder for you than I have. And yes, it's hyperbole, but, but I mean, he believes it and they believe it because they do see that he is different than every establishment conservative they've ever voted for, hoping for one thing and then getting another. He gives them more. He gives them authenticity. He drives the left insane. He actually enacts policies that he says he's going to. And you're like, he just did it. He just made it happen, which is amazing because you're so used to being let down. Now, maybe our standards are just incredibly low, but he has a power to make people believe. And he makes people think that there's hope for their country, that it's possible to have normalcy again, that we can go back to a life without lockdowns and masks, or you know, more importantly, without riots and burning down city and nobody in power doing a damn thing about it. Because that's what people want as 2020 draws, draws to a close. Think about it. Ask yourself, what is the one thing that I want more than anything else coming out of this election? I want things to feel normal again. I want to go to the store and not have to wear a mask. I want to not have people telling me who can be at my house or how far I have to stand away from people. I want people not to yell at me in public because I'm just breathing the open air. I want to know that if I go downtown tonight, I'm not going to have to worry about getting attacked in the street by jackbooted thugs that nobody's doing anything about. I want to know that I'm going to have a job and I'm going to be able to pay my bills. And I'm going to be able to buy Christmas presents for my family. That people are going to say, Merry Christmas, and it's not going to be like a, an offense against the woke gods. People want normalcy. Adults in this country, those of us who remember what the country was like before everything went nuts, who remember the world before the internet, who remember the simpler times that we had before, we just want at least that much hope again. I, want, I talk to my wife about this all the time. We were both born in 77. So we grew up in the 80s. And it's like, I just remember feeling hopeful about my life, about the future, about the country, about the country's greatness and its place in the world, about the opportunities that existed. That's what people want to go back to. You know, apocalyptic stuff is fascinating. But the power of apocalyptic doom and gloom scenarios is fear. Fear captivates your mind. But, you know, to quote Dune, fear is also the mind killer. People get stuck on fear. I was watching this video the other day, um, and it was a, a news story out of Texas. There was a train derailment, and the train had liquid cars, you know, those, those tanker cars, and they were carrying chemicals. This train is derailing and, and the train is going off the tracks and the cars are getting crushed and there's chemical fumes spewing everywhere. And this video is being taken by a dashboard camera and the, the truck, the pickup truck that's sitting in front of, of the car that's taking this video, he's just sitting there watching this thing exploding in front of him. And, and I'm sitting there and I want to scream at him turn around and drive away as fast as you can. You have no idea what's in there and what's coming at you. But that's a metaphor for us, for social media, for the news. We sit here and we watch the train wreck and we don't even notice how toxic it is. We just keep taking it in and taking it in and it poisons us. It was Nietzsche who said, that if you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss stares back into you. And you don't need to like Nietzsche to know that that's true. We've seen it happen. That darkness consumes people. So this idea of, oh, everything's going to be so bad and we're going to lose everything. And, and I get this. I mean, social media is such a weird place because you get very interesting cross sections of different types of people. But 
so many doom and gloomers that I see. Oh, I don't think there's, you know, nothing's ever going to be good again and blah, blah, blah. But people want it to be good again. They want to believe that it can happen again. They want to believe that America can be great again. They don't want a Mad Max dystopia. And that's where we're headed very clearly if the left retains power. So people want hope. That's the bottom line for themselves, especially for their kids. They want to know that the big stuff is being taken care of on the national level, defense, economy, taxes, you know, the stuff that needs to happen at the policy level so they can focus on the stuff that's local and domestic. I don't want, if the president's doing his job, if the country is running correctly, I shouldn't be hearing about him all the time. Just like the Pope. I shouldn't be hearing from the Pope all the time unless he's saying something amazing or scandalous. Our Pope does nothing but say scandalous things. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I don't want to be involved at the international or the national level all the time. I have a family. I have a town that I live in. I have stuff I need to take care of. It, it shouldn't be where I'm having to like pay attention to this all the time and be subsumed into this drama, you know, of watching the train wreck. What Trump is doing out there, I think, with this energy that he's pouring out, with the slogan that's more than a slogan, that America, which is obviously no longer the great nation that it once was, can be great again, is convincing people that there is a future for themselves and more importantly for their kids that's better than the one they have today. That is the American dream. That's what the American dream's always been. It was never home ownership or the white picket fence or two cars in the driveway or color TVs or flat screen TVs. You know, it's not the stuff that Madison Ave Avenue sells. Consumerism is certainly part of American culture. Uh, and it's a part that most of us have partaken in and enjoyed to a certain degree. Um, but that's not what it's about. That's not what brought immigrants to this country. They came here for a better life for themselves and for their children. That's what they're here for. That's what you know, my great-grandparents came here for. That's what my father-in-law, who came here from China at age 14 without his parents because he got a lucky visa that he didn't expect to get because a family member who was supposed to get it got sick. And he came over to this country and didn't see his parents again for decades. In fact, I don't think he ever saw his father again. I think his father died before he ever went back to China. He came here and he worked and he joined the Navy and he was a cook on a battleship and during the Korean War and traveled around and, you know, then he bought property and, and built a life for his family as an immigrant. He goes back to China. He doesn't want to live there. He loves it there. He'd love to go back where he grew up. His money goes a lot further there. But he's like, I don't want to be around the damn communists. This is a man who has been in this country for over 70 years, but still speaks with a thick Cantonese accent. He is a simple man who has an eighth grade education. He's a difficult man in many respects. He's a man who has faced racism over and over and over again. Because yes, it does exist still. And he's dealt with it. And so has his daughter, my wife. Because they're, you know, they're Asian. But he got the Chinaman thing all the time in the military. You know, he had to fight, physically fight a guy to get him to stop calling him that. He had to establish territorial dominance. He's the biggest Trump supporter I know. This man appeals to the common man. And it's because he's offering them the American dream again. We can still have it. It's not too late. It's not gone. And when we see all this stuff about the Great Reset, you know, about restructuring economies and societies and governments, all coming from these wealthy global elites who... You know, they have nothing better to do. They've already bought everything they can buy. They've done everything they can do. They've, they've lived hedonism to the fullest. And now they entertain themselves by playing chess with people, with the lives of real people, because they're that arrogant. Every normal guy, every stay-at-home mom, every Joe six-pack, you know, everyone who believes there's a higher power and that that higher power is not them, those people don't want everything reset. They don't want their world restructured. They don't want people who look down on them and think they know better than them to tell them, no, 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 you need to live your lives differently. 
or as the one video uh, that the World Economic Forum put out, and they have this this screen right at the beginning, and they they're predicting like things that are going to happen by 2030. And the first thing out of the bat is you're going to own nothing and be happy about it. I'll I'll probably throw the screenshot up. I don't have it in front of me right now, but but you know, in this dumb crap-eating grin on the face of the guy, you know, sitting there smiling, oh, you're going to have nothing and you're going to love it. No, get off my lawn. Not going to love it. I don't want you telling me what to do. You're not better than me just because you have more than me. You know, and I had an interesting conversation with a guy the other night. Uh, I will leave his identity anonymous, but he used to be a very wealthy man. And he said, you know, confession, when I had all the money in the world, I'd be driving in my car and I'd look at other people and they, you know, they had a less nice car or they're pulling a, a boat that's just a little tin can. And, you know, I would think about everything that I had and, and I would think for a while that I was better than them. I would look at them and I would think I'm better than they are or I know better than they do. And I looked down on them and he's like, and God humbled me. And, you know, he doesn't have all that wealth anymore. He has the wealth of a beautiful family with you know many children and and grandchildren uh you know and just a, a really phenomenal solid family of people that i love and respect but it, it can become this thing where you start to think i am successful because i'm better and i'm more and that's what these global elites especially you know the godless ones they just believe well i must have all of this wealth and all of this influence because i am a superior human being and as a superior human being, I need to fix the world for all of you little twerps out there who don't know what you're doing. You don't know better. I got this. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. It's infantilizing. So people want a simple life. They want to make enough money to pay their bills. They want to feel safe in their city or state or town. They want to be able to go to the store on a trip to a national park, whatever, wherever they want to go without thinking they're going to be attacked by some roving mob. They want to see their kids grow up, get married, have kids of their own, get together for holidays, birthdays, watch sports, throw footballs in the yard, barbecue, go to church, live their friggin' lives in peace. That's all people want. And what Trump is offering to people is that. That is what he's offering them. He's offering them a chance for just normal life. A chance that America the America that is right now could actually be more like the America that used to be. Now it's possible that this promise of normalcy is just an illusion. It's possible that we can't ever go back again, that the tide cannot be turned. We don't know even if he wins what the next four years will bring. Maybe it's just four more years before we hit the iceberg. And I was talking to a friend about that the other day, and he said, you know what, though? I'd take that. I'd like four more years. And I would, too. So if there's a chance, most people with any sense in their heads are going to take it. It doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right, because if they're decent people who have loved ones and, and people and, and reality and civility and decency matter to them more than ideology, they're going to want a chance for those things to continue and they can see in the streets and in the policies that if the left, the progressives, if they get control, it won't, it will be taken from you. It will be Gavin Newsom's California where he's telling people how many people can be at their house for Thanksgiving that they have to wear masks, you know, anytime that they're not eating. He even wants people to wear their mask between bites of food that people can't sing at these get togethers because that will spread the germs. And if they do sing, they have to sing in a low volume and a low voice. Get off my lawn, you weird, disgusting piece of crap. So yeah, maybe Trump can't pull it off, but he might. And people who would never have voted for him before or a guy like him before are looking at their country burning down, are looking at the lunacy everywhere. The country is tearing itself apart and they're like, I don't want to be a part of that. So that's why I believe he's going to win.
And even though they're going to try to lie and cheat and steal, it's not going to be enough. He's going to win. Now, I, I'm not going to bet you a million dollars because 2020 has proven to me that anything can happen and the unexpected is what you should expect. But my gut, he's got this. People want their country back. I want my country back. And even if somehow the enemies of all that is good and decent prevail, we now know how many of us there are. We've seen these rallies. We've seen the Trump trains on the highways with their flags flying. We, we can't forget that sea of people that live amongst us. People who want something better and are willing to fight for it. And even if we lose, that hope stays alive because those people are out there and we can band together and we can do something about the crazy. I feel like in a way you can't really see it, but actually, let me see. Let me see if I can position the camera so that you can up on my wall. It's a little dim. I have a Gadsden flag. Uh, and that flag to me is, is very emblematic of, uh, where things are right now with the election. Um, because the American people who are rallying behind the president, you know, behind a president who's looking at all the forces hell bent on destroying what we have. And they are in unison proclaiming, don't tread on me. And the threat in the Gadsden flag is, that's a rattlesnake. Have you ever run into a rattlesnake in real life? I have. And they are intimidating suckers. Now, I've never run into one on foot, thank God. Uh, I've had enough fun with copperheads that way. Um, but, but I was driving. I, I have a Jeep, and I drive the trails sometimes. That's... That's my way of getting out into nature is I go up into the mountain trails and drive around and stuff. And there's these uh, desert trails up here near the Four Peaks Mountains in Arizona, which are really the emblematic mountains here in this state. And I was down in this wash driving along and this diamondback rattlesnake was down there and he heard me coming in my Jeep. You know, they always say, oh, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. He was ready to take on the Jeep. I was so glad that I was sitting inside that vehicle because he was not backing down, you know, and I didn't want to run him over. So I think I ended up backing up, but I'm just looking at that thing, man. They're serious. They are not messing around. He was coiled and ready to strike. And that's the threat of the Gadsden flag. It's, I'm not coming at you yet, but if you step on me, if you screw with me, if you mess with my country, you're going to feel the bite. And that is what the American people in unison with this president are saying to the left. You don't get to take this over. Sorry that you planted your roots in the Frankfurt School, you know, at Columbia University 60, 70 years ago. And your long march through the institutions looked like it was going really well. But there are still people in this country who love decency and love family and love God and want a future that reflects those values. And we have the guns. So pray for our country, pray for this election. It's funny, you know, saying that, I don't know. I was thinking about this. I don't know if God steers the outcome of elections any more than he does the outcome of football games. I mean, as a New York Giants fan, lifelong, uh, I know what it's like to pray that your team just wins a football game. And then to think about it and be like, why would God help my team win a game? Like, that's not what he does. But I'm gonna ask anyway, and the prayers you know, usually go unanswered. But I don't know. I don't know if he's gonna help, he could. But this is mass free will in effect here. And I hope, I hope that he gives the graces to hearts and minds that people who are, you know, not so sure, you know, that they have a change of heart, that they make a decision to do the right thing. I don't know when we'll know, you know, that this thing is done. But tomorrow, tomorrow is a turning point in American history. And I know, I know it gets said, you know, Trump actually said this in that speech in Macon. He said, I said it before, I said it in 2016, this is the most important election of your lifetimes. And he's like, and I meant it then, but I mean it now, I mean it more now. You can't let these people win, they are crazy. And he's not wrong.
but they're more than crazy. A lot of their leadership is actually evil. This is a battle of good and evil. And, and Archbishop Vigano keeps putting it in, not just in those terms, but in apocalyptic terms. And that's a scary thought um, for those of us who do want a future for our kids, who do want to see them grow up, get married, have kids, get together, live the life that we got to live with our parents and our grandparents. So I hope it goes well. So pray. Pray to uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, who is the patroness of the Americas. Pray to uh, the Immaculate Conception, who is the patron of the United States. Pray. And vote. And let's talk when this thing is done. God bless you. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of the One Peter Five Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channel, like this video, not only uh, hit the subscription button, but the little bell notification icon so you know when new videos come out. I've been doing them more frequently lately and want you to know about them. Please share it with your friends on all your social media. You can email it. You can send it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Um, And, of course, as I said at the beginning of the show, we do need your financial support to keep doing what we're doing. So if you can... Drop in a couple of bucks at onepeter5.com forward slash donate. We would appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.